Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to episode 8 of Retro Hangover. Chris Copeland coming to you over the sweet, sweet kilobits and megabits of the internet. I'm here today with the controller crushing, yelling for yingling, grinding and grim rock, King Commander Kupo Khan Koski. Shane. Ah, the alliterations have made a return. I feel like things are things are as they should be once again. You said they better be back. I did. And and you did not disappoint. Man, I don't even know how to follow that up. That's that's impressive. Well, thank you. But you're welcome. Let's transition over to the week that is our lives, <clears throat> specifically in gaming. I know you have a lot because there's been some cons and stuff like that going on. So, so go into it. I mean, as far as gaming goes, yes. Um, maybe maybe not video gaming so much. I think I've actually done far more like board gaming this week than I have in quite some time. O- outside of uh, outside of the con, which I'll talk about in a moment, I had several like just casual get-togethers that have turned into board gaming nights recently. So uh, been playing a lot of let's see, what do we play? Dominion, which is fun. And uh, other than that. Played some more Dead of Winter. I think it was like the second time I've played that. Um, have you ever played that before? I, I don't play a lot of tabletop games. Man, you need, you're missing out. I, I know I am. I'm not looking down upon it. <laughs> I just don't play them. Yeah, no, Dead of Winter is pretty cool. It's uh, it's basically like a zombie survival thing. So you and, and the other players are all survivors, like post-zombie apocalypse. And it's aptly enough... The middle of winter. Winter is coming. Uh, no, it's already here. Oh, winter is there. Yeah, it's there. Is Jon Snow dead there too? Yes, he's dead everywhere, for now. Oh, did I spoil that for some people? You really did. Hey, Jon Snow's dead. Yeah, you, you, I, I saw that you, you pissed off at least a few people on Facebook because of that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so part, part of the whole thing with that game is like it's about resource management and. Um, going out to, like, there are separate sections of, like, the gameplay space that serve as different areas that you can move your survivors to, to, like, forage for for food and weapons and, you know, medicine and things like that, and, like, every round <clears throat> there's a different crisis that happens and that you have to deal with in a certain way, and if you don't, you lose morale points. If you lose all your morale, then you lose, obviously. Um, if your survivors all die, then you lose. And there are other things like frostbite and wounds and stuff that you have to, you know, keep track of on top of the zombies. So uh, it's a little complicated, as a lot of those games tend to be. But um, once you get the grasp of it, it's it's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. So okay. did that. Um, did some more betrayal uh, at the house on the hill. That's one of the ones that I own. 
Uh, I really like that one. Um, that's another one I would suggest you play at some point. You need, like, at least three people for that. But uh, it's like a haunted house thing where you're a group that goes to investigate the titular house on the hill. And at some point, the haunt occurs, and then one of the players becomes a betrayer. And then that's where the game, like, completely changes. And there's, like, two different rule books. One for the betrayer and one for everybody else. And based on how the haunt happened... Um, there's a chart in the in the uh, instruction booklet that tells you which like haunt scenario happens, and there's 50 different possible haunts that happen. So you could ostensibly play that game like 50 or so different times and always get something different, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and then other than that, uh, some more Munchkin. That's always a thing. Uh, played that at the con as well. They had a Munchkin tournament going on, but we didn't have a chance to participate in that one because we had... Uh, we had our Pathfinder game, which I'll talk about in a second. <laughs> Let's see, anything else that I was playing as far as board games go? I think that's about it. Uh, the video gaming's been pretty light, like even lighter than normal, and I know that we say that every single week, but... Like my level of light? Yeah, like I have basically played nothing, like other than the stuff on my phone. Record Keeper? Always Record Keeper, Always. although I'm even behind on that one too, like uh, the new event. What is that? Like, Marriage of Convenience, I think it's called? For Yuna. Yeah, yeah, Marriage of Convenience for Yuna. Yeah, I haven't even finished the normal dungeons for that one yet. I'm behind. But uh, that, I've been keeping up on my Fallout shelter. That thing is growing exponentially. They, like, made over $5 million in revenue from that game so far. That doesn't... Well, actually, you know what? That does surprise me, because there actually isn't a reason to buy, like, the premium currency in that game at all really but that's cool I'm, that's a lot of money yeah it is for a free game and then some steam stuff like i put a little bit of time into grimrock uh i just bought 100 percent orange juice for like 6.99 oh that's a game yeah it's a game <laughs> I, I, I didn't buy actual orange juice why not it's good i mean i don't know man i don't usually drink juice but uh, that's it's like a it's basically like an anime Mario Party except without the mini games and it has like a card deck building system instead. Ah, that was at the behest of my my friend Zoe. She plays it, and so I'm probably gonna get roped into playing that with her and her boyfriend and at least one other person because it's up to four people. But as a matter of fact, I'll probably be playing that later this evening. But yeah, so Pathfinder. Pathfinder talk. This this part's hilarious, man. You got it. You got to talk about this one. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> there's a little bit of a backstory to this. For those of you that don't know, Pathfinder is basically like Dungeons and Dragons. So much so that the reason Pathfinder even exists is because it was a group of people that took the 3.5 version of Dungeons and Dragons and thought we could probably make this better, and so they did. Uh, so you know, pen and paper. Weirdly shaped dice, all that sort of thing. Die. A die is one. Yes. Dice, dice is many. Oh, I yes. thought it was the other way around. No. Well, then I was wrong. <laughs> I stand corrected. Uh, if not for nothing else, you can learn. You can learn things with the Retro Hangover podcast. But uh, yeah, so uh, me and about three of my friends 
uh, signed up for a, one of the Pathfinder Society games that they were running at Ancient City Con this weekend, which happened here in Jacksonville, Florida. And the reason we signed up for this is uh, a couple of our friends started this idea of a couple of characters who are both named Sven. They are vaguely Bavarian, sort of Swedish, somewhere around there. It's not really nailed down exactly where it is. And they're twins, and so they basically do and say and look the same, so much so that we took it a step further in all of our characters. Um, well, Zoe notwithstanding, she she played a bard, but uh, the rest of our characters were all fighters. And she Nordic, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all were. She was Svenlana. Svenlana. <laughs> she goes by Sven for sure. <laughs> But yeah, so we all played the exact same identical fighter, and for any of you who are familiar with Pathfinder at all, you would appreciate the fact that we utilized, and by utilize, I mean abuse the shit out of, uh, teamwork feats for these characters, which only work if you are standing next to each other. So a lot of people don't use them because a lot of people don't, they don't usually play with the same people enough to actually get any real use out of these teamwork feats because it requires you to be, like, your characters need to be standing within a certain distance of each other for it to even work. But for this particular scenario, it works beautifully. real life or in, like, uh, in the, the game world? No, no, in the game world. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to physically be standing next to somebody. No. I don't know. I mean, these are, like, rules that... No, Depending like, on your DM could probably change. No, that, that'd be ridiculous. But no, um... It, the what it basically means is like your your characters because you use little pieces like you would on any other game board really um, and it's a grid okay and your characters have to be standing basically in adjacent squares to each other okay so kind of like old the old Warhammer games yeah okay yeah something like that and so these teamwork feats we picked them out specifically so that we were just like stupidly overpowered for level one. It got to the point where as long as we were all standing in formation, which we always did, monsters could not even touch us unless they rolled a critical hit. That's it. That's the only time they could ever even hope to touch us because our armor was so high because of these feats. It was ridiculous. And, of course, we were talking in Bavarian accents the entire time. And we not just for the game. We did this all day. We all dressed up in full-on, like, Lederhosen and like German hats with feathers in them and beer steins and walked around the con all day as the Schwens and talked like that and I think it went over pretty well. We we by the end of the day we had random people walking by yelling Schwen at us. So I, I consider that a success. <laughs> Um, and luckily, the, the dungeon master, the guy who was running the game that we uh, Sven-bombed, that's what, we, that's what we dubbed it, was really cool about it. Uh, and he actually really enjoyed it, both just from, you know, from a flavor perspective, I guess, because he's been running these games for like people that have never played the game before all day long, so he's just burnt out on it. And to have a group of people that not only know how to play the game really well, but also are bringing that kind of just, like, completely off-the-wall character to it. He I, could have had a complete meltdown, too, when you put it that way. <laughs> that was, well, that was the other option. It could have gone one of two ways. Either he was going to be really cool about it and everything was going to be copacetic, or we were going to show up and he was just going to 
fucking throw a fit. Oh, fucking these guys have been dealing with these goddamn noobs all day, and then these motherfuckers show up and want to play goddamn Bavarian Oktoberfest shit. Yep. Fuck you. Yep. Yep. It could have gone that way. Luckily, it didn't, because it was a four-hour game, and that would have been hell to sit through for four hours. But everybody was totally cool about it, and it went off without a hitch, and um, it was it was pretty funny. So that 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 has been my week. What about you, Chris? What have you been up to? I, I, I'm yeah. If you want to know what I've been up to this week, just listen to last week's episode. Listen to the beginning; it's pretty much the same thing. Record keeper. Yep. Yeah. Uh, been, I got my stam- stamina up to seventy five now. I 76. think you are. I think you are above me now. Yeah, seventy six. I've been going through and playing all the elite dungeons that are really low levels. A good one to get if you haven't picked up. It only like cost twenty four stamina. Is uh, Final Fantasy four elite dungeon when they go to Fabul, mm-hmm. and uh, that's like twenty four stamina elite dungeon. You get a stamina shard or maybe two stamina shards out of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty good one to pick up. But um, Final Fantasy Type Zero, which I will continue <laughs> to say is a game I hate to play because I'm just I do that, I have to complete games, I'm realizing what is really ticking me off about this game is that it assumes that you're going to play through it twice. Oh, It, it just good. assumes you will. So it's it's like Ghosts and Goblins level of du- dickery. Dickery, yes. Difficulty, no. Yeah, well. Because, I mean, we've all played those old RPGs where you go into a battle and you're supposed to lose. Like, yeah. The guy is so overpowered that, like, one hit and he just kills all your characters... And it's like, oh, okay, this sucks. Bloodborne starts out that way. Really? Yeah. Huh. You actually technically can beat the first monster you come across just with your fists if you're mm-hmm. good enough. Right. But more times than not, you just die. Well, Final Fantasy Type-0 has the same vein and attitude towards that. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of the bosses for these missions they have, you're like at level 30, and it knows you're at level... The game knows you're at level 30. Because unless you're just sitting around grinding doing stupid shit and not playing the main game, you're going to be at that level. Mm-hmm. It knows it. And then you get to the boss, and the boss is level 65. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, is there any way that you can cheese it to actually win that fight, or is it actually just impossible? I mean, if again, if you're, like, good enough, you, there's, there's ways to do it because there's opportunities where, like, we'll give you a weakness that you can attack, and then you can keep exploiting that weakness over and over again. For the most part, you just have to keep dodging and not let the enemy hit you once, or else that character's dead. See, now, what I'd be curious about is if they actually programmed the game to take that into account. Like, what would happen if you won? It doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, that's the thing. It's programmed to account for if you win, because you're supposed to win on your second or third playthrough. Hmm. Oh, okay. So, I I actually beat one of the bosses I wasn't supposed to beat, either. Mm -hmm. I beat Gilgamesh. He was at level 65. And I was I beat him at a level thirty guy just because I kept on avoiding. He's not that difficult, but um, it is something that infuriates me because I'm not going to play this game a second time. Yeah. It's not going to happen, and I'm getting tired of oh here's this level seventy character that you can't beat, and we're going to kill all your characters and go into another story mode where we assume that you don't beat them. But hey, when you play it again, you'll get more story info. Uh, no, no. Now outside of, of that, do they <laughs> do they also do that thing where? Like, you see items, and I have no idea how this game is laid out, but, right. like, you see things in the game that you know you can't get to right now until you, like, get some ability or something later or some shit like that. Uh, not so much abilities, but when you run around, because they have a hub world and you get a lot of your, like, tasks and 
shops and a lot of your information and stuff to make time pass through the day, mm-hmm. which is another thing I have issues with. I haven't really delved into, but like you have your little hub world, which is like their school essentially, and some characters will have what they call tasks or quests right. that you're supposed to complete. And some of them you walk up to and says, "Oh, this is a really difficult one. You need to be level fifty-five to complete this." And there's no way you're going to be at level fifty-five by the time you're supposed to take that quest. Mm. So again, it's assuming you're going to play the game twice. So I'm just going to get through the game what I can. Uh, I'm understanding the plot. Um, maybe there's a twist on the line, but I'm almost done. I only have like two chapters left I need to complete. So that game has almost come to a close, thank God. <laughs> um, I picked up Bug for the Sega Saturn okay. uh, from VGR this week. Mm-hmm. Played a little bit of that. My kid played it. He said it was hard, and he hasn't picked it up since. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a weird game because it's a 2D game on a 3D plane, and you're supposed to utilize the 3D like you press up and you walk into the background and the camera shifts with you and you press down you move into the foreground and you move left and right it's an interesting okay. concept a game I played a lot when I was younger so I was, I was glad to pick that up and um, yeah my PS3 died too that's interesting so it, the, the, the Blu-ray finally died out on it I can still play DVDs PlayStation 2 PlayStation 1 games but it will not play Blu-rays or PS3 games so I ordered a laser lens part and hopefully I'll be replacing that and, and fixing it because I don't want to order the entire drive. Well, I mean, you, you know it would be pretty cool mm. is if, if if the PS4 was, was backwards compatible. Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> that makes it so much easier. They don't have to worry about it. Right. But, I mean, other than the fact I have all this data saved on my PS3. Yeah. yeah well. I mean, other than that, but hopefully I can fix that. It's... These the, we all know those systems made last generation weren't meant to last the long haul. Mm. So I mean I've had this I've had that system for since two thousand nine, and that's a common problem. It's the very first model of uh, PlayStation threes, and some of them just quit reading Blu-rays. The first time I bought a PS three, uh, before I traded in, it uh, had that problem. So I turned around, traded in, and got a refund, and was able to get the one I have now. And now that has the problem, but now I know how to fix it. So. I'm going to be trying to fix that, and uh, so my kids can play their Lego Batman 2 again, because that's what they were trying to play to begin with. That's how we found out. But on that, that's that's all I really got going on. I got a nice two-week vacation starting tomorrow afternoon, and I'll be enjoying that staycation. Maybe playing some more games. So that means that next episode, you're going to have like a whole bunch of games to talk about, right? That's, uh, that's, that's what's going to happen. Probably three. Because I'll probably beat Final Fantasy Type Zero. Mm. I'll keep on playing Final Fantasy Record Keeper, and I'll start a new game. Yet to be decided. Yet to be decided. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Oh, I threw some more time into FF Seven too, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that's that, that's ready to be given back to me. Nope. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I mean, maybe, or maybe not. Did you finally get a memory card? That the memory card is not the problem, man. It's the freaking console. Did you get a memory card that works with your console? Again, it's the console. Like, even even the slightly newer versions of the PS1 memory card still don't always work in the PS2. Like, it's, it's first-party Sony it's memory card? It's finicky as shit. Yes. It is? Yes. Yeah, fuck that. That's fuck the that thing. System. Well, that's the thing. Like, I, I looked into that when that PS1 card I have wasn't working in there, and the only... The only information I got from anyone on forums online was, uh, yeah, it's pretty much hit or miss if these are even going to work in your PS2, so good luck. Well, fuck that PS2. 
Yeah. You get a slim if you even want one. No, because they don't actually work in the slim. So fun fact about the PS2 slim is that they tightened up the security on it to yeah. try to get rid of third-party memory cards. But in doing that, they overdid the security and actually locked out some of their official Sony PlayStation memory cards. You know, I do not have this problem. I mean, that is that is the coolest of stories, bro. I but mean, I'm just saying that like that is something that happened. I mean, you're telling me, though, that these, these, these problems exist. I have not run into any of them. It might just be that your system is just bad. I mean, does it, does it other read, than that, it works just fine. Does it, it read PS2 memory cards? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, PS2 memory yeah, cards work just fine. And I know that that PS1 card is fine because it works in my PlayStation. That's weird. So, although I do have a Slim sitting in the other room that I haven't tried yet. But you is that system still on? No. Okay, so you turned it off. It, yeah, because the the party died. and Well, actually, they didn't die. They all got pyramided. And <laughs> that is basically the same as losing. Yeah. And when you can't save your game, that means you're done. Yeah. So yeah. That that's the end of that. Yep. Sure is. That sucks. Yep. Well, exciting week for both of us. Hopefully next week will be more exciting because I'll have some time off and hopefully more to talk about and we'll see what Shane has in store for us. But in the meantime we have new stories we need to get to before getting to the main topic. Our main topic today will we'll be discussing the unfortunate passing of Satoru Iwata and what Nintendo's gonna be doing. But before we get to that we need to talk about what's on tap. thing we're going to talk about this week is we're going to be addressing something that Capcom has repeatedly come under fire for, and that is how it handles its DLC, its extra content, and all that stuff like that for the Street Fighter series. As most of us know, or if you've been paying attention, you know, that Street Fighter 4 came with a lot of on-disc, quote, DLC, unquote, which came under heavy scrutiny for. In addition, they also released like four or five different versions of Street Fighter 4 over the years with the new additions. Now, granted, they released these to be included, if, I think, if you already bought the physical copy for your system, and they're at a discounted price. But people who were new adapters much later in the game saved a lot more money for all that content later on. And again, going back to the on-disc DLC that was already on the disc and could be played, they were just making a paywall in order for you to, in order to play the, as these characters. And they rightfully got slammed for it. Now, I don't know what the difference has been. Maybe it's because Sony's helping them out with this, this project. Um, maybe because they're trying to get goodwill with the fans and they realize that they were wrong. But Street Fighter V is not going to have these issues. You're going to be able to get all new characters balancing uh, any DLC essentially for free by repetitively playing it and, and getting in-game money. Now, of course, you can still buy the stuff if you want. I mean, that's probably what Capcom wants you to do. But it is possible to get everything that's included for the game free right out the gates. And I think this is something uh, Capcom kind of needed to do. I, I think they're on their last legs, and this is they, they need the goodwill. They really do. <clears throat> well, yeah, and I mean, the model that they had for Street Fighter Four was... Really, there's there's no other word for it other than exploitative, I think. Uh, particularly for their hardcore fan base. Because if you're an early adopter of anything like that, then yeah, you totally got it stuck to you. Because you then had to drop all that extra money to 
basically remain competitive because as long as they were releasing new content for that game, you needed to have that in order to, you know, maintain a competitive edge if you're that sort of player. So, rightfully so, that community was not particularly happy about that. That didn't detract them at all. I mean, well, they no, still because stuck around. Well, yeah, because what are your? I mean, I mean, there's always Guilty Gear. Or all sorts of other fighting games, Smash Brothers, even though Fighting Pirates don't consider that to be a real fighting game. Yeah, but um, I think a lot of that fan base is so entrenched at this point because Street Fighter has such a long tail as far as its legacy goes that I... And Marvel vs. Capcom 3 never really picked up either. Right, right. So they, and I think Capcom knew this, you know, they yeah. they have a long-standing series, they have a long-standing fan base to go along with it. And so they wanted to push the boundary a little bit and see just how much they could get out of people before they had a backlash, and I think this is where it ended up. Now, I would say that this method is better. It's old school. Well, it, it combines old new school, but it's mostly an old school approach. I mean, it's it's basically the freemium model that you see with like any mobile game nowadays. You yeah. either grind forever to get your content, or you pay a few bucks and get it now. But there's a lot of that in the older games. Like, if you get a lot of your content, you had to play forever in order to get unlock things. Yeah, but you couldn't just drop a few bucks and unlock it right away. No, no, no. So it's combining the, the two. But you could that you, they have the old school approach by the more you play, the more you earn. It's just they have the new school approach of you drop the money, you get it all. Which, if people are smart, they're not going to do that. Well, no, but there but, are always people with more money than smarts, so... Yeah, and more people who just want to get everything right off the bat and not have to work for it. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, depending on what exactly is going to be unlocked in this, you know, downloadable content, uh, you could make the argument that anybody who is investing the money up front into the, well, the in-game currency called Zenny, which I, is stupid as hell, but um, that that's the currency that allows you to buy stuff right away. So if people are investing in that right out of the gate, could you not make the argument that they might have an unfair advantage, at least in the beginning? I wouldn't say they would necessarily have an unfair advantage unless you have someone who's trying to grind and get a character that they want to main with later. If, if their character they want to main with is right available from the beginning, no, it's not going to be an advantage. And Zenny's not stupid because it's been in, like, every Capcom game with currency. That does not make it less stupid. Oh, it was in Breath of Fire. It was in Mega Man Legends. It's still a stupid fucking name. Well, it's Gil better? I'll take Gil. You'll take Gil? I'll take Gil over Zenny. I'll take Zenny over Gil. <laughs> Zenny's, Zenny is also in uh, Dragon Ball. This is not helping your case. I think it is. No, it's not. I think I think, I think the the anime fans out there will agree with me. I, I don't care. Although the <laughs> the other one isn't much better because they just were fight money. Yeah, they just threw creativity out the window. Fight money. They're like, okay, so what do you do to earn this? You fight. What is it? It's money. Okay, we'll call it fight money. Yeah. Okay. It's, let's break for lunch. It's better than blood money. Um, I mean, yeah, that was probably... I mean, that was a pretty decent Hitman game, but really, I'm um, just waiting for them to really go back to the roots. So so there you go, guys. Uh, <coughs> Street Fighter V is going to let you get all the on-disc content for free if you're willing to work for it old-school style. But if you don't have patience, you can still buy it, so good for you. That's right. You can have your cake and eat it, too, now. 
Speaking about stupid money and being stupid with money, or maybe smart with money, depending if you're a fan of the series. And cake. Are we talking about cake? No, cake's a lie. Now, Shenmue 3 has officially broken the record for a video game through Kickstarter. Now, Shane had some disagreements with with crowdfunding. It was not a disagreement. It was, I just needed to research it a little bit more. in, in, In a way, you're right, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Shenmue 3 closed with a total fundraising amount of $6.3 million. It passed the previous number one fundraising game of all time, which was Bloodstain, which just got done like a month ago. Uh, and they were at $5.5 million. Mm-hmm. So Shenmue 3 definitely did it. I was wrong. I, I, uh, when we first talked about Shenmue 3, I thought it wasn't going to get this high in terms of backers. I didn't think it would quite crack $5 million, $5.5 million. But it did. Uh, and it easily eclipsed the game that I backed. Uh, I did not back Shenmue 3. Uh, again, I'm very happy for the backers here. I know that Yu Suzuki was looking for a little bit more than this. I know there's a lot of controversy involved with Shenmue 3 regarding what Sony is doing, what they aren't doing, and helping the game get produced. But uh, Shenmue fans, there you go. You, you've shown, you've raised your voice, you've shown that you wanted this game, and it's going to get made for $6.3 million. Good for you. Good job. Yeah, I won't pretend to understand um, the draw of this series because the I, I well a I never really played it to begin with and b looking into it more I've I I fail to see the draw but I know that it does have its own very dedicated fan base and I am I am in fact happy for them that this is going to get made the. <laughs> The potential disagreement I had with this was basically the tagline was something to the effect of this being the uh, most funded video game in Kickstarter's history, which is technically correct, which is in fact the best kind of correct. Yes. But it's it's not the highest funded thing that's been on Kickstarter. Not close. By a long shot. And that's why I wanted to double check on it because... Uh, it, for those of you that are following these sorts of things, you may have heard of a little thing called Star Citizen, which at this point I honestly don't even know where it's at. I think the last number I heard was probably somewhere in the like fifty to sixty million dollar range. It's like the biggest crowdfunded project, not just game, but like project of yes. all time. Yeah, and this is after the fact funding, so they actually closed out at only about like. Two mil and change, something like that, yeah. Um, But they've gained so much since then, based mostly on the projected scope of the game and the fact that they just keep adding more stuff, which is in its own right a little worrisome because a lot of people are wondering whether this thing is even going to ever happen. Um, But that's an entirely different story. But as far as technicalities are concerned, Shenmue 3 is definitely the, the most funded video game uh, in Kickstarter history, so hopefully good things for Shenmue fans. But something Shenmue fans should be worried about is something that Double Fine's really coming out and saying right now, and that is Broken Age. Broken Age is another Kickstarter success, much like a lot of things we've been talking about. They raised $3.3 million to make an adventure game, not an open-world, sprawling action, martial arts, intense graphic game. No, they set out to make an adventure game and raise $3.3 million. And as it turns out, through all the sales they had on Steam, uh, through delaying and putting it 
into two different parts. Uh, with the $3.3 million, they have said that they are just now breaking even on if you combine the amount of money they got on Kickstarter and the amount of money they had to pay themselves on the entire project for Broken Age. If you're a Shenmue fan, you should be extremely worried. If you're a Kickstarter fan, you should be extremely worried. And if you're a Double Fine slash Broken Age fan, you got to be really confused. Yeah, I I mean, I've said this before, but I, I, I cannot fathom where this money went. Um, if you're at all familiar with, with Broken Age or most of Double Fine's work, you know that they're in the business of making, you know, very stylized 2D adventure games, mostly in the old, like, point-and-click style. And that is exactly what Broken Age is. And to raise $3.3 million of a $400,000 goal, and then not only say that after dumping roughly twice as much money as they raised into it from their own coffers to make this thing work, uh, but then splitting the game into two halves and continuing development for roughly 18 months after the first half was released before we even saw the second part of the game. I I have no idea how that happened. Uh, and granted, Double Fine does have a little bit of a reputation for going over budget on pretty much all of their games, but this seems like egregious. And, and on top of all of that, I and of course this is purely subjective, but I thought the second half of the game was really lackluster like I actually didn't even finish it and I don't intend to um, I enjoyed the first half a lot but I felt like the second half was it just drags and it's actually kind of like a it feels like a cop out this what I find interesting about this is I want to know what it's, it's going to be like for all these uh, successful Kickstarter projects I want to know if I can only imagine Shovel Knight's broken even now if they're going if they're venturing into getting physical copies. No, I, I think they've been doing pretty well. But I think Shovel Knight, out of all the major ones that we know about, is probably the most is the least um, hardware demanding game out of everything that's been announced. Uh, when it comes to Mighty Number no. Nine, uh, Bloodstain, Ukulele, Broken Age, Shenmue, that was the most technically that was the least technically demanding. I don't know. I can't. I can't for the life of me. I don't know what. I didn't look it up before coming over here because uh, it just kind of popped in my mind now. But I don't know how much they raised on Kickstarter, and you might be. That's probably why Money Number no. Nine is facing many as delays as it has been, and it kind of worries me for Bloodstain, even though they got five point five million dollars and this is two D platformer. I mean, when you I mean they say twice as much in addition to what they raised, you're talking. It took them ten million dollars to complete Broken Age. Ten yeah. million. Yeah, that's a lot. And I mean, I understand that, you know, development costs are very high, and there are a lot of things involved in that that perhaps we don't always think about. But there's there's no physical release for Broken Age either, was there? No. No, there's no manufacturing or distribution costs or anything like that for this game. It was purely... And, it, and it's also... And I might be sorely mistaken about this, but I'm almost 100% certain this was a PC-only release. So you didn't even have to worry about multiplat. Like, no. it's just... It's just a PC game, and that's what that's what that's what they do. That's what Double Fine has always done. But again, like I said, they also have a bad reputation for just going way over budget. Well, this for them, I think, was also a a labor of love. When you think about it, I mean, Double, does Double Fine really does they really need um, that much backing to make a new game? People are going to hire them, maybe not to make adventure games, but that's why I think it's a labor of love. They wanted to make an adventure game, but they couldn't find a publisher to do it. 
And they didn't change their identity. Well, I think that's kind of... And this is going back to our previous discussion about the evolution of games, but I think that the adventure game, and and by that I mean like the old school adventure game like this, it's, it's still a hard sell. So... That that's where that's why they had to go to crowdfunding. I think, especially because, if you say it's going to cost ten million dollars to well, make it. Well, they didn't friggin' say that <laughs> from the outset. Four hundred thousand. Sure. Yeah. Now, something that I can't think of a segue for, but it has to do with really old stuff that you probably don't remember. I know I didn't have a Commodore, but I, I've heard enough about it. Is you can now have a Commodore in your pocket. Yeah. The Commodore PET smartphone is going to be released. It's uh, being made by some guys in Italy. Uh, they got up the trademark for it in order to produce stuff with the Commodore name. And it's going to be coming out in Europe soon, where the Commodore is more popular. That I do know. The Commodore is much more popular because they had the Amiga over there, which is actually successful. Mm-hmm. But they're going to be coming out with a uh, Commodore phone that's going to have emulation on it in order to play all Commodore games. Uh, it's going to be an Android-based phone, and it's going to be coming out... Uh, in France, Germany, Italy, and Poland for $300 or $365. I don't see anything about a U.S. release. I think it would be kind of interesting if there was, and it would be extremely niche. And I I think there's a small community that would buy it, but uh, it is pretty interesting retro gaming news that something's coming out that plays Amiga and Commodore games. So if you want to go back and play those things on your phone. I mean, it. the idea of it is, is kind of cool, I guess. I just don't... I'm wondering what's going through the head of these Italian entrepreneurs who managed to get this Commodore trademark. Like, they have more money than we know what to do with? More money than sense? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Because I don't see... Well, first of all, there's zero need for this device. Like, there, there's no one asking for this. And, and, and second of all, you know, ostensibly you could just do this on any piece of hardware anyway. If you just download an emulator... I mean, particularly Commodore 64 and Amiga games, like, hardware these days, you could emulate a Commodore probably on a calculator. So, like, you could do that on a, on your Android phone today, probably, if you found the right, you know, uh, emulator pack. But to pay 300 or almost $400 for this phone where that that is the gimmick... Well, you have to understand, I mean, our... our excitement for this is going to be rather tepid just because Commodore was never big here in the US. I mean it has the Commodore 64 is probably the best well-known aspect of Commodore, but we never got the Amiga or cared for it. Or okay. <laughs> but I mean, okay, so then put this in the terms of of things that we as, you know, North Americans would care about. Like okay. let's say they released a smartphone where its whole shtick was that it came preloaded with, like, an NES emulator. Oh, uh, and this is where I think you would get, people would get excited. You'd have more of a reaction. Imagine a smartphone made by Nintendo that came preloaded with NES and SNES games. Okay, again, why? Because it'd be made by Nintendo. But why? I'm not saying it'd be a great idea. I'm just saying people would be excited about it. I wouldn't be. I would be like, okay, great. Again, 
that's shit I could emulate on my own now. Or and actually, you can go onto the marketplace, particularly for Android, because it's a little less curated than the iTunes Store, and you oh, can yeah. find you can get emulators emulators now. So. I'm just going back to why. Like that, and if you're that much of a Nintendo fan, you probably have a 3DS or something, and you can probably play all those games on there. True. I, I mean, yeah, I, I get your point. I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate as as hard as I'm trying to here. Yeah, but even you are finding it hard to find a reason to for get this, this thing? fucking thing. I don't yeah. know why it's existing. It's, it's completely nostalgia-based for it, but I don't think there's many people that have nostalgia for it. I mean, the phone itself seems pretty <coughs> impressive from a technical standpoint. I mean, it's mm-hmm. almost a six-inch screen with a 1920 by 1080 display, which, while that resolution is pretty cool, makes us think that that might be a little tiny for a phone screen. It's You can't even discern that at that level, between um, that and, like, 720. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's got a stupidly high megapixel camera for that, if you really cared, and some other stuff. But... It's essentially an Android phone that just has some emulators like preloaded on it. Well, I mean, it's got the Commodore trademark on it and symbol on it. So yeah. That, that, Ooh. I don't know. It means something to people in Europe, <laughs> I guess. Oh, man. Now, one thing that you may have not heard about in a while that's kind of died off is the lawsuit between Electronic Arts and pretty much, I don't want to call it the NCAA Players Association, but former players of the NCAA and where the players were saying that Electronic Arts was using their images and profiting off it in their series of college games. In fact, it made NCAA, I don't know if it was 14 or 15, uh, it made it the last game in the series uh, once this lawsuit started. You weren't able to get any more NCAA football games. There hasn't really been any NCAA March Madness games in a really long time. Uh, You won't find any college games on the market right now because of this lawsuit. And these players... One, and I wouldn't, I don't know if this is necessarily big based off how many people are in the lawsuit, but in terms of raw numbers, they won big uh, with a $60 million settlement from EA in regards to using their likeness in these video games. Yeah, based right now, based on the number of people that have registered their formal complaint with this lawsuit... The players themselves are individually probably only going to be getting about... 7,000, 7,200, somewhere around there. So, not so much a monetary gain as more, I think it's a statement, I think is really the bigger, uh, you know, important piece of this. I know, and, and you, you have to understand that my under, my understanding of, of well, more, mostly sports ball in general is pretty limited, <clears throat> but uh, I did recall hearing some things about this in the in the past when this was starting to come up and you know saying that part of the contracts that these players sign when they you know uh attend these colleges not a contract it's a scholarship okay sure whatever (laughs) it's still a piece of paper and actually it might be a contract because of the fact that they're athletes i think it's something that they sign like part part of the deal for them to get their scholarship let's put it that way Okay, yes, part they of have the, to play football. Right, part of the paperwork that they sign in order to get these scholarships from the school, in order to play football to attend said school, there was verbiage in there that basically relieved them of any uh, rights to any of the money that was made on you know NCAA games, whether that be broadcasts, merchandising, anything like that. 
and you know so basically they're saying that that is it's not right and the fact that these schools are profiting millions and millions of dollars off of uh, you know tournaments and merchandising deals and advertisements and everything like that and are free to use these players likenesses in video games and everything else at however they want with absolutely no recompense going to the players I can see where the argument comes in. And for those of you who don't pay attention to sports, this has been a very contentious issue in the world of college sports for a while now. Uh, Just because of what Shane said, you have colleges and universities making millions upon millions of dollars through the NCAA and their bowl system and advertisements and all these things per year. It's a billion-dollar business. It's probably the second most popular sport only behind the NFL in the United States. And if you ever talked to anybody from any of these colleges, whether it be the coaches or, you know, some of the the higher ups, uh, I saw a few interviews and they vehemently disagreed with that. And they, you know, swore up and down that actually I recall one of them saying that they thought that they basically broke even on their NCAA, like, uh, you know, it depends how you view it. Well, it's I, there's a lot of creative bookkeeping that goes into that, I'm sure. But. There is, um, because if you really sit down and think about it, I know we're going to a tangent about sports and college sports and stuff like that on, on, a, on a podcast about video games, but you know, you look at this, you look at the lawsuit and how they're using their likenesses. I, I do think that this is something like they're going out of their way and they're not getting people's permission in order to represent themselves digitally. Like, stats are based off them. The way they look, the way they play in the game is based off the perception of what how they look and how they play the game from a spectator's point of view and how they perform and what their numbers are in terms of stats and uh, what, they, what they can do on the football field or what they could do on a basketball court. Now, in terms of them actually making money in college, I think a scholarship is enough when you start getting that because when you start saying you have to pay these kids, so on and so forth, and you pretty much have to pay everybody equally, it doesn't matter which sport they play and whatever the case may be because there there are some things, I think like Title IX goes into it in terms of what is equal and what isn't equal. Mm-hmm. And you got a lot of issues there. And, and especially when you start talking about like certain players are going to get certain money and certain players aren't in, in addition to their scholarships, you're going to run into a lot of problems. But in terms of video games themselves and taking someone's likeness, this is like if someone took your likeness and they put it on a TV and they started making money off of it without your permission and saying, like, I endorse this product, you'd probably be fuming mad because you want a little bit from it. That's essentially what they do with these kids. Is I love these football games myself. Uh, this is one of the, myself, this is one of the games that I would get annually, like a, like a Call of Duty or Madden fan. I was that with NCAA football, and I love doing that because there's a lot of RPG elements in there. If you don't believe me, you should go check it out. It's pretty cool do the kids deserve some money out of this or the schools or whatever uh i think so i think they should have kept the 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 players in the loop somewhat or signed something in their scholarship contract you want to call it that that (laughs) their likenesses would be available for use by outside entities if if requested and if they were being used they declined to have them being used for that purpose but i don't think any of that was happening either uh, no, no, it wasn't, <clears throat> and and I do recall you know seeing at least one interview with a player where he said that you know he he had recounted a, a story where one of his neighbor's kids had come up to him one day and said like oh I 
played as you in this game yesterday, and it was totally cool. And he was like, I have no idea that I was even in that. Uh-huh. Like, so yeah, the, the players had absolutely no agency in that whatsoever, to the point where they weren't even informed when they were being included in, in these, you know, in these video games. So, well, speaking of things that are pretty cool. Yeah. The PlayStations, the original PlayStation, yes, the PS1 from developed in 1994, 1993, going back that far. That CPU is being utilized to send you photos of Pluto. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, corporations and the government are always known for using what they consider more tried and true technology because they don't want something to break, which makes sense. This is maybe stepping back a little far, but. Uh, but yeah, the, the same CPU that uh, powers that gray hunk of plastic that you call a PlayStation uh, is also sending us uh, data and photos of, of Pluto. Mm-hmm. It was launched with it in 2006. So this, this spacecraft vessel, whatever you want to call it, was launched in 2006. So even by the time they launched it, it was a 12-year-old CPU. I thought it had been launched earlier when you're going back to the CPU developed in 1994. Now, make whatever jokes you want to about it, but they're saying that the, the CPU itself is reliable. And I guess the CPU itself is reliable for a PS1. I mean, it wasn't the CPU that kept overheating and not reading discs at some point. Yeah, no. I no, I mean, NASA was not interested in, in the laser eye, I'm pretty sure. No. From, from the PlayStation. No, they weren't. Uh, but, hey, look, I mean, it, I think it just goes to show that, you know, the, the technology that we're using nowadays, I think it's just far more advanced than we actually give it credit for. We're looking at the PS1's computer is helping to power the spacecraft that is sending us the best photos of Pluto we have ever had. And we're talking about just, what, is 22-year-old tech almost? 21-year-old 20, tech? Yeah. I, I mean... We're already we're far past that. We have far surpassed that CPU. Yeah, in I mean, terms of technology, and that and that and that thing's doing that now. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, and you know, for for the sake of comparison, you know, most of us are running dual or quad core CPUs in our computers now, running at multiple gigahertz per core. Where this this little bad boy released in 1994 was running at a blazing uh, just shy of 34 megahertz which was awesome for a console in 1995 yeah, yeah. <laughs> today well but uh, you know as chris was saying if you think about that you know if you give you know the the cpus and stuff that we're using now another decade or so mm-hmm. just imagine what we can be accomplishing with those it's 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 insane but you know, kudos to Sony to making something that reliable and that long-lasting and be able to provide. If you haven't seen them, fascinating photos of Pluto, things we have never seen before. If you're into space junk, uh, go check those out, and you'll you'll be impressed. What's not impressive is how journalism is handling game criticism uh, when it comes to Mario Maker and how they've perceived uh, Mario Maker to take this on. Uh, this this story has been corrected. Um, and I'll give credit. I got this story from a couple people uh, going off on it in YouTube, and rightly so. There's an article in Business Insider that was written by Ben Gilbert where he was invited to go to Nintendo to try and test out the new Mario game. Why Nintendo would invite someone from Business Insider to test out a Mario game, I, I don't know. It uh, doesn't really seem to match up well. Uh, they, I mean, I understand if they invite them over to see their new business plans or their new system or what they plan on doing. That I can understand. But to try out a new video game is kind of puzzling. 
Anyway, uh, Ben Gilbert wrote an entire article saying how Nintendo was out of touch. And I'm paraphrasing, but uh, Nintendo just didn't get it because when he was using the stylus to create levels in Mario Maker, the hand on the screen did not match his hand. It did not represent him. And he was worried about the fact that it didn't represent everybody equally. And he could not understand how Nintendo overlooked your hand avatar matching yourself. Listen, <laughs> this is the kind of like sensationalist, politically correct bullshit that I hate the most. This, this is nothing but clickbait. There's no substance in this story at all, and this is, this is basically just raging at nothing. So, so as Chris had mentioned, you know, in, in Mario Maker, there's an actual digital representation of a human hand on, I believe it shows up on the gamepad, right? Yes. That's what it is. Or cat paw. Or, or a cat paw. But, but the human hand is, from what it looks like, it's a female, it's a white female hand, basically. Oh, no. And it did not match his, and then he made the argument of, well, what happens if a 10-year-old Japanese girl, or, or I'm sorry, a 10-year-old black girl, or a 30-year-old Japanese man plays it, or literally any other human being other than adult white woman Okay, is this is this even something that you would have even thought of? Like, if you were playing Mario Maker and you looked at the gamepad and you saw this hand, was that would that really be your first thought? I I look at games like Bayonetta and I think to myself, way over sexualized. I mean, sure, game, I way mean, over sexualized. Sure. Yeah, I watch old cartoons. I'm watching Dragon Ball right now and how they portray black people, and I'm like, this is wrong. I see a female hand guiding a stylus. On a gamepad to represent me moving things around, uh, I don't think about that. I just think that's the hand that they're utilizing for default because I'm just moving things around. It's not trying to say anything offensive or make a statement or anything. It's I'm not even thinking about it. It's it's stupid. Like I, other than people who are actively just looking for something to be angry about, I, I don't imagine anyone would have looked at this and thought, you know. How does this hand on this gamepad represent me as a person? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) This, and and I heard people saying that this is people just looking for clickbait and and trying to make a racist, sexist argument. I view this as the epitome of entitlement. Yeah. This is, this is more, this isn't more of them criticizing them being racist or sexist, which it, it kind of is. But I think it's more criticizing them and saying, why don't you understand how special I am? (laughs) Look how special I am, and you don't recognize how special I am, and I deserve to have something that looks like me in this game. I mean, and and the the funny thing about it, well, one of the many funny things about it, is that this complaint is being, you know, leveled against a game that is also centered around a fat, like, mustachioed stereotype of an Italian man. Why can't he look more like me? Yeah. Why, why, why can't he not have a mustache? I mean, he's, he's portly enough, so I guess, I mean, he kind of does look like me if you get rid of the mustache. <laughs> um, but, I mean, at this point, like, apparently Mario is just so entrenched now that we don't even think about the fact that he is basically a... A stereotype? A caricature of Italian people. 
just in general. You that is actually more offensive than this whole hand thing, and yet nobody cares. <laughs> no one cares about the damn hand either. Well, apparently Ben I mean, Gilbert does. does. Ben Gilbert did. And by the way, Nintendo came out and says you can change the skin tone, you can change the gender, and you can have a cat paw instead of a hand. I, I, I do find it puzzling, and this isn't a, this isn't a real criticism. I'm just wondering why Nintendo didn't do this go the Mario Paint route to begin with, just from a creative standpoint. Why they just didn't have like a Mario hand or a glove? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been easier. It would have avoided any of this stupidity and all oh, that. The stupidity and criticism shouldn't even existed anyway. I'm just wondering. Well, no, it would have been. I think it would just would have been nice to have the Mario glove. It would have fit fit better than a creepy human hand. Or they could have just cut all of this out and just went with only the cat paw. That's Man. your only option. You just get a cat paw. Cat paw or nothing. But it doesn't of course, like you. Of course, then you'd end up getting some complaints from you know. I'm sure some association of dogs. Who, you know, I am not a cat person. I, Why can I not select a dog paw? I am not represented by cat paws. Oh, we as a nation, if this is... I, I really hope this isn't a legitimate complaint. I really hope he was just looking for clickbait because this is sorely pathetic. Uh, but speaking of things that look good, I'll let you, I'll let you handle the, the movie. So, uh, yeah, we got a couple of things that came out of Comic-Con. And we had talked about some of this stuff last week. Uh, and, and there was a number of, of you know news items, but I think these were some of the more notable pieces. One of which being uh, the Suicide Squad trailer. For me, at least, and I think Chris agrees with this, this trailer has probably single-handedly changed my opinion of Suicide Squad. I did not have a very favorable outlook on this thing based purely on some of the initial, uh, you know, photographs that were released from the set and some of the uh, official stills that they took, not just candids from the set, but uh, particularly the one of the Joker. And that one has been a pretty contentious topic amongst fans for a while now just because of the stylistic changes that they've decided to go with. Uh, I think the tattoos probably being the biggest thing, particularly the damaged across his forehead, which is a little, a little hot topic for me. But um, I, I still, I still hold the criticisms of his look to be valid myself. The look, yes, I think it actually would be a little bit more palatable if the tattoos were gone, just because they're so. Like on the nose, they're they're so self-referential that it's just like, it's not even amusing. It's just like cringy. Hey, but the Joker would totally sit around and get tatted up for a couple hours, right? Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> but uh, no, I think the 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 relatively small bit of Jared Leto that we see in this as the Joker gives me some hope. I actually kind of liked the voice that he seems to be going with. I will say that it does sound like he's kind of trying to do his best Heath Ledger impression. But uh, but all in all, it's left me with a much more positive um, outlook on this than I once had. I kind of watched it and had the same reaction. I don't really follow DC Comics too much. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not too much of a DC comic guy. I think that's mostly because the cinematic universe has really pulled me into the Marvel Universe. And that's that's the main reason I'm more familiar with the Marvel Universe. But what I saw from the Suicide Squad's trailer, and not knowing too much about it, is I came away from it positive, like with a positive outlook on it. The entire trailer made me feel like this is going to be a good action movie. 
This is going to be interesting. I, I'm probably going to enjoy it. I'm not going to have too many complaints about what I see. I, I guess the small thing I can see is they're trying to make these characters, from the trailer anyway, it looks like they're going to try and make these characters a little too sympathetic. you got to remember that this is still a team of villains. So I hope they don't try to like humanize them too much because they're still bad guys. That's the appeal of it. They're bad guys doing the bidding for good people because of reasons. Which I don't know too much. Again, I'm not that familiar with the comics. I think uh, Margot uh, Margo Ruby, I think her name is. Margot Robbie? Margot Robbie. Uh, from uh, the movie with the Nar- uh, DiCaprio in it. That was really good. The Wolves of Wall Street. She looks like she's going to be a good Harley Quinn. I don't really have any complaints with her. Uh, she's no, smoking, I actually really... Smoking hot. Yeah, I actually <laughs> really like her in this trailer as, as Harley Quinn. I think she's going to do a really good job. I might actually end up liking her more than the Joker, mm-hmm. actually. I saw the Joker at the end. I have not been impressed with his design. Um, the, I can't get past it. I, I cannot get past it. He could give a brilliant performance, and I'll hold out for that. Because it sounds like, I mean, look, he only got one line of dialogue in the trailer itself. It's uh, like, he's gonna he's not going to kill you, but he's going to hurt you really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. That's something Joker might say. It also I, might be somewhat of a reference to The Shining, which yeah. is also kind of cool, but that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's an aside. I didn't view, I didn't think about that either. Nice catch. I, I can't get past the way he looks. Uh, I want to. I want to see more of his performance. I mean, I've just never seen a Joker like that. I don't understand why they have a Joker that look like that. And I, I'm sorry, I can't get past it. But hopefully, his his performance can distract me enough from that. Um, I mean, is it the grill? Is that really like the sticking point? It's the everything. It's it's the it's the shirtlessness. It's the tattoos all over himself. It's the damage across his forehead. It's the grill that he's carrying around. It's just not any Joker I would possibly think of. Because he's, he's pretty much running, he's walking around like a common street thug. And a common street thug is, in my mind, has always been the people that Joker has used, not yeah. what the Joker has been. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I can't get I can't get past that. The other thing is, I don't like Will Smith. Uh, not, not in a role like this. I, I'm over yeah, Will Smith. I'm so... done with Will Smith. I don't want any more Will Smith, and he's in this movie, and it looks like they're trying to make him the main attraction because that's what you do with Will Smith. Go away, Will Smith. I mean, it. yeah. It, it looks like it's just another Will Smith playing Will Smith. As Deadshot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can't say I was all that impressed with him. I, I'm Listen, Will Smith has had his moments that I've enjoyed him, like... I, I will always enjoy Independence Day, and I will always say "Welcome to Earth" mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> Fresh Prince, Fresh Prince, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So he has his moments, you know, uh, but not in this. And he, I mean, hell, I don't know. Like he could prove us all wrong, you know. It's happened before, and not with him specifically necessarily, but if we're talking about Batman and, and DC and those sorts of things, you know, everybody. Never in a million years thought Heath Ledger was going to pull off a believable Joker, and yet he was arguably the best one we've ever had. And I say arguably because I know some people are going to say Jack Nicholson. Um, yeah, but when the trailer came out, everyone was convinced Heath Ledger yeah. was going to be good once they saw the trailer. I don't think anyone's convinced Jared Leto's going to be a good Joker yet. No, I don't think they're fully convinced. Um, but as I said, it gives me a little more hope for it. I'm probably still going to end up seeing this, because I'm interested. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go into it with some relatively low expectations in the hopes that I will be pleasantly surprised. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. 
Basically, yeah. And actually, that's kind of the same uh, tact that I'm taking with Batman versus mm. Superman, as a matter of fact. Which is another trailer. They they, they brought another trailer during Comic-Con, an, an updated one. Um, much longer, much more detailed. Brought out much more of what's going on with the characters and stuff like that. And I think that if you had something against the previous trailers or the design for the movie, it's, it, it's might change your opinion a little bit in, in terms of the positive, but it's not going to change your opinion overall. But if you go into it with a blind face and don't read the comics too much, you're probably going to like what you see from the trailer. I mean, and that's kind of the direction that I'm coming from, because I haven't really read much of anything. Like, to be perfectly honest, the extent of my Batman reading is like the killing joke and maybe one or two other select pieces and that's really it and superman i have read zero superman so i'll be honest the character of superman has never interested me no at all ever and a big part of that is i think because he's so powerful and squeaky clean and yeah and such like the goody two shoe kind of character that like i cannot there's nothing to latch onto there. Like, I'm not asking for a Deadpool out of every superhero or whatever, but, you know, there's got to be some some flaws, and I, I, apart from the fucking kryptonite. I mean, like, a personality flaw or something like that. And to a certain extent, I will say that I feel like they tried to introduce some of that in the most recent Superman movie where, you know, Henry Cavill sort of, like, made mm-hmm. his debut. Uh, that was some mixed reactions on that one. A lot of people didn't actually like how that ended up because they argued oh. that Superman shouldn't kill. Nerds hated it. Comic book nerds absolutely could not stand that movie, the first Superman. I will say that I I, I enjoyed it, probably for some of those reasons, because I was like, well, good. Finally, Superman is doing something that is might actually be like morally questionable that's mm. that's great i think it brings a certain dynamic to the character that i'm not entirely sure has ever really been there or at least not not as pronounced but and, and i'm also a little personally biased because i actually like henry cavill as an actor anyway so is your new channing tatum uh you know i don't know like it's really hard it's it's really hard to 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 replace the the c-tate I don't even know if that's a nickname, but I to- but I totally just made it right now. Satate. Yeah. Satate Chan. <laughs> now you can meld them with your anime buddies. I was going to say, that sounds both a little too kawaii and also a little too close to the word taint, which I'm not sure that I like. Oh, God. And here I thought we weren't going to talk about that again. I'm bringing it up. Son of a bitch. Speaking of which, my mom... Uh, my, my, my. Jesus. Um, my wife never um, picked up on the mini fridge. So she oh. didn't. I asked her today if she listened to the episode last week. She said no. So maybe has, I'll just has, go get a mini fridge. Has, has she listened to any of them? I don't think so. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, that's mini, loyalty right there. Getting a mini fridge, man. Getting the mini fridge. <laughs> um, I mean, so what What were your thoughts about the, 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 the B-Man v S-Man trailer? I know we kind of talked about this a little bit last week because it was out last week when we were recording our podcast, uh, and I had seen it previous too. Uh, still not sold on Ben Affleck as Batman. Nope. Still not. I'm not. It's very unsettling to see him in that role. Uh, I think just because he's kind of a common man and 
in a lot of his movies, he's like Joe Everybody. Not to say he's played like the poor guy in every movie, because there's plenty of movies where he's rich like Bruce Wayne. But he, he's kind of still Joe Everyman, and Bruce Wayne is anything but Joe Everyman. I just, I can't buy it. I, I can't get past, uh, in, it's Ben Affleck as Batman. I, in terms of production, though, I'm, I'm happy from what I see in terms of overall production. I think Jesse Eisenberg is going to be a pretty interesting, if not well-received, Lex Luthor. Uh, he's atypical of what we expect from Lex Luthor, I think, but I don't think he's going to give a bad performance. I think that is going to be just fine there. Uh, Henry Cavill as Superman is, is fine. And uh, this one I can give a free pass for being dark because the Frank Miller version of uh, when Batman and Superman fought, that was dark. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, well, it's, that's... it's Frank Miller. It's so. Frank, everything he does is dark. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, that was dark itself. Uh, you can't... I can understand the complaints with the, the Superman movie, the, the one before this, because, you know, Superman is supposed to be more lighthearted and fun. But I can understand when they're doing the Batman v Superman and being more dark and, and morose and grim and edgy and whatever the case may be. Wonder Woman still not... She's a gorgeous girl, uh, Gal Gadot. That doesn't mean she's a very good-looking Wonder Woman. I don't know if there's ever... I think it's just the character design. I don't think I've ever liked any incarnation of Wonder Woman. I think it's just... Well, if, like, Lucy Lawless at her height... Lucy Lawless at her height probably would have been, like, a good prototype for what Wonder Woman could have been. There are people out there that would have been a better... Wonder Woman than Gal Gadot. I think it's just a badly designed character. Just from yeah, just I from the outset, I I don't like. I I don't know. I've never cared for it. Like I think the costume was hokey as shit. It is. It's very hokey. Like, uh, but I just don't. I see Gal Gadot is too small. She, her frame is too small. She's just too much of a too petite, too demure uh, of a character of a person to to fit in that role and and fit it appropriately. You know, a lot of people have said, well, you just don't like this character because she doesn't have the boobs. No, it's not about the boobs. It's, you know, it's supposed to be a bigger, taller, fuller woman for Wonder Woman. Just a bigger person. Gal Gadot is just, she's, she's supermodel size. I, I can't get past that either. Uh, and like I said, it has nothing to do with how they're going to perform in terms of acting. I, I, I just, and she's very limited in the trailer anyway. And what I saw, I'm still not convinced that she's going to fill that role appropriately. But well, we have yet to see. I am more interested than I was a few months ago. But so here's a question: I I'll have. St- yeah, Lex Luthor, right? Yeah. There was a lot of talk about you know Jesse Eisenberg or what's his last name? Eisenberg. Eisenberg. Yeah, I was right. Okay, Jesse Eisenberg being cast as as Lex Luthor, and from what I saw in the trailer, I think it, he it looks like it's going to be an interesting take on the character. One thing I wonder though is, do you think perhaps? He is too young. No. Well, for where Superman is age-wise, I think it's because of the Smallville effect. Mm-hmm. Because in the Smallville, they're the same age going through high school together. Right. And that makes me think that, yeah, he's a little too young to be playing opposite Superman. So now, with that being said, and this is not an unusual thing because I know I've heard it a lot and you probably have too... But it is something that I actually tend to agree with. Not that I know a ton about Lex Luthor or Superman, but what if they had cast Brian Cranston instead? Too old. Really? You yeah. think he's too old? Too old. Hmm. Too old. Kevin Spacey, when he did it, well, it was kind of appropriate. Yeah. Even though, I mean, he did an okay job, but I mean, he was I like Kevin Spacey, but I don't know if that was the right. 
It wasn't casting he was, choice. He was for that. okay. He wasn't great. It was most lar- that entire movie is largely forgettable, and that came out anyway. Yeah. No, no one really remembers it. But um, I wouldn't say Jesse Eisenberg is 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 too old, um, or too young. I wouldn't say that. Uh, it's just the way they portray him in the movie is much too seems much too young. Mm. The full head of hair and everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, my presumption with that was that like that's going to change over the course of the movie at some point. So because these come out with pics with him, yeah, you know, bald. Yeah. So we'll see. Moving on to our main topic this week, uh, it starts out on a somber note. We found out this news immediately after wrapping up our recording of our podcast. Um, yeah, literally within minutes of hitting the stop button, we it, saw it, this. It just transferred over to a flash drive, so we can move it over to another computer, and we got the news. Um, this is regarding the passing, of course, of Satoru Iwata, president of Nintendo. He has he was 55 years old, died on July 12, 2015. Um, saddened the entire video game world uh, with his passing. Uh, it was very sudden, uh, died of a, a bile duct growth mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of people had thought he had recovered from, but apparently yeah. he had not. Took him very relatively young at the age of 55 years old, and he was a very, very, very important, influential figure within the video game industry. And this was something that was not overlooked by anybody uh, in the video game industry. You know, so he had Sony coming out, Microsoft coming out, video game publishers coming out, uh, paying their respects. And I don't think anyone that that covers uh, respects or pays attention to video games. Didn't take this news with uh, somewhat of a somewhat of a hit and somewhat as a shock, because I believe anyone who has played video games, if you have not played a game that was at least touched by the hands of a wild in terms of developing, then you played a game that was inspired by it, or uh, played played a game that took heavy influence from what he has contributed. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, I think a large part of of why uh, why Iwata has been so, I guess, revered by the video gaming community is by and large, ever since his, you know, introduction to Nintendo from, from HAL Laboratories, of which he was a founding member, he has had really nothing but a positive impact on the company ever since he got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as Chris was saying, you know, even if you haven't played them, you've at least heard of them. I mean, he's been an instrumental part of things like Earthbound, um, the entire Kirby series, uh, all the way to Pokemon and Super Smash Brothers, just to name a few. So we, I guess we just wanted to take a little bit to, to discuss, you know, Iwata and where, you know, where he fit in with Nintendo, where they are currently in a large part, I think, because of him. And where they are going uh, after his passing. So, with the passing of Satoru Iwata, you have two people that are present in the interim right now. And that is Shigeru Miyamoto, which surprised no one, and uh, Genyo Takeda. Which probably a lot of people don't really know unless you're really, really in the video games. And uh, you follow Nintendo on a daily basis, because I, I didn't recognize the name. Um, if you don't know who Takeda is, he was behind the Punch-Out! series. And right now, he, him and Miyamoto are running the business end of Nintendo until they can figure out where, where they get in, uh, their next president, where they move from here. To figure out where they're going to be going from this, you have to think about where they have been. And we have to realize that Iwata was president of Nintendo since 2002. So he came in after the GameCube had been released, which was 
I believe, probably a major kick in the nuts to Nintendo because it was the first time... It wasn't the first time they were second in the market because the Nintendo 64 was second in the market to the PlayStation. But it was the first time that their system came out and no one really cared. Very shortly after that is when he came out with the Wii. And that was because of Iwata's thought process of the Blue Ocean strategy where you don't try to compete on a hardware level with your competitors, but you try bringing in a more novel and fun approach to the way you do video games, try to uh, push the limits of what you can accomplish, which is why you look at motion controls. And that, of course, was very, very, very successful, selling well over 100 million units worldwide, which I think puts it, it's either second or third all-time in terms of total units sold. So whenever you think about it, rousing success. And then they followed it up with the Wii U, and as we all know, the Wii U uh, isn't doing too hot. I think that was mostly a marketing thing rather than a creative decision, but I think that didn't help either with uh, what what they put out. Now, Iwata also came out with the 2DS and 3DS during that time, both wildly successful. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, as far as the Wii U goes, I, I think that, that it's really unfortunate because, I mean, you and I both own one, and I think it's a very underappreciated system, actually. Not by the people who own it, though. Well, no, but that's not really what matters. Right. It's it's. I think it's it's underappreciated just by the public at large. Mostly, mostly because a they either just don't really realize that it even exists, um, which I, I think, as you had mentioned, was a, I think that was mostly a marketing failure. Yes. I don't think you should have ever called it a Wii U. Um, it should have been an entirely different name because I know, and I heard people say it. Uh, actually, my parents said it, mm-hmm. <laughs> of all people, because they own a Wii. And they I remember them asking me when I purchased my Wii U. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, what is that? Is that is that something new for the Wii? And that right there is not uncommon. And that's part of the reason why I think the Wii U has been doing so badly is because people just didn't realize that it was actually a new system and it wasn't just some peripheral. But I, I think that's where Iwata's Blue Ocean strategy backfired where you try to not match up with your competitors but try to introduce new tech, is when he did that with the Wii, a lot of those Wii, peop- Wii buyers were not gamers. They, they were your parents. They, 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 were, yeah. they were your relatives that didn't normally game. They're they, the retirement homes that put Wiis in the rec room so mm-hmm. that people can play bowling. And very, very young children or people that just earn the games that just want to have a little showpiece that people come over and party and play. They're not going to be video game industry savvy. I, I don't... I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I, I don't think that that... I wouldn't say that's a failure of the Blue Ocean strategy in and of itself. I think he would have been... They would have been mm-hmm. fine had they marketed differently. I think that was really the only problem there. And I know... So what you're saying is by marketing to ostensibly a much wider audience that isn't always up on, you know, the current video gaming news and things Mm -hmm. like that. When you start marketing your console to, you know, soccer moms and retirees, you need to be a little bit more sensitive to that and to the market that you are pandering to. So by naming your your successor console mm-hmm. something so incredibly similar to the thing that mom and dad just bought so that they could play tennis it and just not even like a 2 a 2 would have been different if they would have called it Wii 2 which sounds stupid but 
that would have made all the difference in the world. But the fact that it was so ambiguous, mm-hmm. that just confused all of the casual buyers that they had brought in. Well, the, the reason why I say this this backfired is because you have to remember a lot of people were buying this in 2006, 2007, 2008. Right. And that's when most people were buying it. By the time you got to 2013, people weren't really buying the Wii anymore. It fell out of the, the No, because everyone already yeah. owned one. <laughs> well, it, and everyone had burned through it, and everyone had played it, and it yeah. fell out of the consciousness of the public at large. So that's why you saw Nintendo at that E3 try to advertise towards the hardware market, the, the, hardcore, the quote, hardcore market, and try to bring those people on board. Uh, the hardcore market already had their PS3 and Xboxes, and they saw another Wii thing, and they're like, they, they didn't like the Wii to begin with. And you're not going to convert all of your the people coming over because let's face it, the PS4 and Xbox 360 and the PS4 and Xbox One could have just come out on nothing but game sites and been fine. The yeah. Wii U came out on nothing but game sites. They didn't advertise. They didn't cater to that market, and that's where the marketing failure was. But I think they assumed that the Blue Ocean people would pick up the game console and they start picking attention to Nintendo, but they didn't. Well, I think the other part of that too is a lot of those, if we want to refer to them that way, the the, the Blue Ocean folks. Mm-hmm are not used to that sort of a life cycle either. No. They they weren't they were expecting to buy a Wii and then that was gonna be like the only video game console they owned ever. Or two years later them coming out with an H D version of the Wii that played all their all all, all their own games. Because that's what I mean that market is the same market that has done that with the iPhone. Yeah, I just I, I don't think that they were at all familiar with how that you know, that life cycle works and so that coupled with the weirdly ambiguous naming scheme that they decided Mm -hmm. to go with just ended up as a recipe for disaster which was unfortunate because like i said the wii u itself is not a bad system i actually really like mine it's probably the most i definitely this generation is the most fun i'm having and that 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 actually caused a lot of criticisms to come the water's way and and as a lot of people called for a water to step down a lot of people wanted a water to uh, get out of the video game industry nintendo become a third third party developer but to his credit, Iwata always stuck to his guns and did what he needed to do in terms of being a president for that company and maintain that identity. So now that we are here where we are, Iwata has passed. Uh, they need to find a new president. The future is on the horizon. We know the NX is in development. It sounds like it's going to have more gimmicks uh, in terms of what they uh, bring out because that's pretty much what Iwata's mindset is. It's not bringing out the most powerful thing. It's bringing out something new and creative. I just wish... Where do they go from here and... I wish, gonna change? I wish there was a distinction between creative and gimmick because I don't, it's hard I, to with I, Nintendo though. I know, but I just really don't like the gimmicks. Like, uh, I, I understand where he's going, where he wants to try to, or where he wanted to try to break new ground or try new things. And I will, I will never look down on somebody for wanting to try new you, things. You really can't. No, and and you shouldn't. But having said that. I will say that, and you know this, I have never been a fan of the motion controls, which is a big reason why I don't own a Wii anymore. I had one, and I ended up selling it because the fact that the entire system was based around motion controls just didn't jive with me at all. And the only reason that I own a Wii U is because it's not so heavily focused on that particular gimmick. Now, granted... Their gimmick with this is the gamepad, and yes, motion controls are still involved to some extent, but not nearly as much as, you know, the previous incarnation, to the point where most games you can just play with, like, a pro controller and be perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. That is cool with me. 
I will say that I don't think they've utilized that gamepad enough to justify its existence. No. But they tried it. You have to give them credit for at least trying. Uh, I can't give them full credit just because even their own games, you don't... Like, even the games that mandate the gamepad being there, like Splatoon, they don't do anything with it that isn't completely necessary. No. I mean, it's usually relegated to, like, a map, which, granted, is cool. It's useful. It's useful. It's nice to have a map. Which is definitely the reason why I'm probably going to get, when Bloodstain comes out, uh, when they send out a survey at the end of the month, I'm going to pick up the Wii U version. Yeah. It's because I have that secondary screen options that I can do. Yeah. Um, But it's not anything that I can live without. I mean, it's not anything I can live with. You know, I, I can get past it. I don't need that stuff. Uh, that's coming with it. There's there's nothing that adds to my experience by having it there so greatly that I couldn't see myself playing it on another system without that that functionality. Now, having said all of that, I mean, I I don't know about you, but uh, with the NX, I would be perfectly happy with just just you know what? Let's let's how about let's not do a gimmick. How about we not do that? Why don't we just stick with you know? There was a time yeah. where. You know, Nintendo was operating solely off of like the novelty of their, you know, stable of IPs. Now, granted, that's that a hasn't little... been like that since the Super Nintendo. Because you look at the Nintendo sixty four, that controller itself was a gimmick. Yeah. The yeah, game, well. the GameCube controller, by and large, look at it. It's a gimmick. You look at the design of it, and the A button is so big because they said, well, people when they play games, they primarily push one button anyway, and that's why we made the A button so big. Even it, like even it was as 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 comfortable and ahead of the times that the GameCube controller was, mm. it was still behind the times. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Like while I definitely encourage innovation and that sort of thing, I just where else can they go really at this point? Well, we've we've talked about where we think it's going to go, yeah. where you're going to have one unit that is two units where the portable unit will will just be able to be a portable version of what's hooked up to your TV in your living room. Listen, if that's the innovation, I am totally cool with that. I'm just saying I don't need another weird ass gimmick attached to my console. That's all I'm saying. And I don't I don't think that they're really going to do anything beyond that because I think if Nintendo's smart, they see the Connect failed. I yeah. think they 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 see PlayStation really, Move. PlayStation Move failed. They, well, that was copying what they were doing. Yeah, like just everything. And the Connect the Connect has petered out. I don't think that whatever uh, Microsoft is doing with their is non VR just like hologram technology. The Hololens. The Hololens. Yeah. That that's that's not going to really take off because to see what that's doing. Even though Nintendo inspired all that's what's happening right now, and I. If you're, I don't, I still don't think they view that VR is going to take off. I'm one of the people who also agrees with that, and I've said that repetitively. If that's their gimmick, because if you look at what they did with the Wii U mm. and, and putting on a tablet, they thought that tablets wouldn't fully take off by the time the Wii U launched mm-hmm. when they were in development for it, and they kind of got caught off guard with how quickly people adopted to it. Yeah, I think that if they do that, it would be a nice gimmick. I wish it didn't have to be that way. But it would be it would be interesting. But I still think they need more power, and that's not something they view. That being said, the two people they have running the company right now, we're, the way I want to present this is kind of there's there's two ways Nintendo can do. They can go internally and have someone that's been with the company for years, someone like a Shigeru Miyamoto or a Takeda, mm-hmm. um, or they can go outside the company and look for someone, a young, fresh face, to lead Nintendo. Uh, throughout the 21st century up into the middle of the 21st century 
And I think if they get someone like Shigeru Miyamoto, you're pretty much going to get a lot of what Iwata did, but you're going to have a lot of shortfallings in other places. I don't think they're going to go outside of the company, and I don't think you think that either. I don't think they will. So, while that could present an interesting opportunity for them to perhaps get some outside perspective on you know their, their operation, I don't think they're going to do that. So having said that, if we focus more in on the two candidates that they're currently looking at, I mean, let's... Okay, so let's talk about Miyamoto first, mm-hmm. right? Anybody that's familiar with Nintendo knows that, you know, Miyamoto has been very instrumental in a lot of the design and production of almost every iconic IP that Nintendo has, um, including... I mean, he created Mario, for Christ's sake. And then... You know, Zelda, Zelda. Metroid. Me- no, not no, Metroid. That, no, not necessarily. Not Metroid. Metroid. That was actually one of the ones that was missing. Star Fox. Yeah. Something. F Zero. F Zero. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a major franchise, he's had his hands in it. Right. So there's there are there's two distinct points about uh, you know if we're if we're talking about a theoretical situa- situation where Miyamoto becomes president, right? Point number one is perhaps the positive one, which is that he is bringing with him all of this knowledge and all of this legacy to that role. So he intrinsically has all of this knowledge of Nintendo, of their stable of IPs. Uh, He knows them inside and out. The potentially negative part of that is that if he is promoted to that position they are arguably losing one of, if not the biggest, influences in their design philosophy, which could fundamentally change basically every Nintendo property in some way. Because if they... They will then have to... See, you have a power vacuum right now where you have a presidential spot open, and then if they're promoting from within, that vacuum is just going to continue until all of those spots get filled. So if Miyamoto moves up, that means that they're going to have a very critical spot in their design and production you know, arm that is going to be open. Now, whether they pr- you know, promote from within or pull somebody else in from outside on that one is anybody's guess. But regardless, that is going to be a huge set of shoes to fill. And there's a very real possibility that, um, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of the the design behind these IPs could fundamentally change, either for the better or for worse, depending on who ends up there. I, and I think he, he's largely turned over Zelda to somebody else at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Zelda's necessarily his. F-Zero's been dormant for forever, uh, the new Star Fox is coming out, and I'm I'm, I'm going to wait to play it first. But I'm not too terribly impressed with that codes. But that's been dormant forever too, and that's had Rare help developing it and Namco help developing it. Hmm. Um, Mario, I think, is the one that would be in the the, the, the biggest danger of of uh, quality drop off. One of the positives I see from Shigeru Miyamoto going moving on to up to be the presidency is one he already has the figureheadedness to hold that position. It would be an easy transition for Nintendo to do because right. they have had so much personality and character from that level at uh, for the company. Um, introducing uh, Genyo Takeda, even though he's been at the company forever, a lot of people don't know who this guy is. No. Uh, they already know who Miyamoto is. 
they've already seen him. He's just as much out there and, and with the gamers as Iwata was, if not more. So that would be an easy transition. The next thing is, is that Nintendo does have to accept that Miyamoto is going to be out of their development sooner or later. He, he's going to be moving on. He's 62 years old, right? Um, I give him, I mean, if he's still making games in 10 years, I, could, I mean, I could see him doing it, but I'd it'd be fantastic. I don't, I don't know if he would still be doing that in 10 years at 72. Uh, so moving over to the presidency would, would help Nintendo adjust to making software without having to rely on him, which is something that they've started to slowly do anyway, I believe. Some of the negatives I see, or positives, uh, depending on you view it, is if Miyamoto goes in there, I've seen that Nintendo has pretty much been a big funhouse to its benefit or its detriment. Benefit for Nintendo fans because the systems they're putting out are fun. Yeah. Um, I, the way I see it is like they're kind of going in and they're, they're brainstorming meetings. They're like, well, let's make a system with motion controls or let's make a system with a tablet. And they're like, oh, that sounds really cool. We should do that. You think it'd be fun? And like, we can find ways to make this fun. Is anyone else doing it? No. It's like, oh, let's do this. It sounds like such a cool idea. And they, I don't think they necessarily think about the business aspect of it. I don't think they approach it with the thought of we're going to sell them 100 million systems if we do great, uh, but we just want people to have fun with it. And that's how I see their kind of brainstorming going, just how they present themselves when you look at their history of, of as game designers and being gamers and enjoying games. I think that's the mentality they go into when they come out with new hardware. Mm. So I think in terms of you're a Nintendo fan, that's a positive, but if you look at the future of Nintendo and what they've been doing lately and how people are reacting to their home consoles, that could be a big drawback instead of someone who's being more business-focused and wants a console that can compete or a console that can sell at the same level that Sony and Microsoft are putting out right now. And and I think that they can probably maintain their like fun image while still also maybe, I hate to say it this way, but play it a little bit safer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. with their hardware. Now, I, I I love the fact that they're willing to take risks, and I, I like the fact that they are... I mean, we've discussed this before, where Nintendo financially is in a place where they can take risks. Mm-hmm. Um, not over the long term, but they can. Um, and, and so I love the fact that they're willing to do that, but at the same time, yeah, for the longevity of the company and for... You know, for their betterment, um, they probably want to try to strike a balance between that. I think that they can still maintain their weird, off the wall sort of like, "Hey, we made this weird puppet video thing," yeah, sort of like uh, demeanor, but also still put out you know some hardware that maybe is a little more solid and and a little more safe in terms of. Going by like x86 architecture and uh, being more powerful and, and having more, a little more power, um, of the, you know, a more widely accepted architecture, and maybe scaling it back on the gimmicky stuff, particularly like peripherals. Right, and I can, and that's why I, I look at now. You and me both believe that it's probably going to be someone internally like a Miyamoto or Takeda. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that would serve them best because these two guys, like I said, Miyamoto is 62, and Takeda is is older than him. He's, He's like, like 65, 66. Yeah. Um, you're looking at two guys that, I mean, they're not ancient, um, but you're looking, when you get to president, you have to remember Yamauchi was president of that company forever. And when they made Iwata president in 2002, 
you know, 13 years ago, he was like 42. He was just right after 40. And so he was young. So they're looking relatively young and they're looking for someone to carry them into the future for a great deal of time. That might be something they're thinking. Again, I don't think that. I don't know if you think that. But that these both of these guys might be too old. And I don't see really anyone on the forefront in Nintendo that they would consider ready to take this position. Do I think they're going to go outside? Absolutely not. But I think that's something we need to think about if they go outside and they get someone else from another company. I, I don't see them ever going outside Japan to do this. No. So you can I can already throw out Reggie fils is not going to be. <laughs> no. That, that is not happening. <laughs> Whether or not his body is ready for that. Absolutely I, I, not. I, I don't think that they're going to do that at all. No, no, it'll it'll definitely stay, you know, within their own shores, and I think it's a safe bet that it will stay within their own walls as well. So, uh, speaking of Takeda, you know, we've talked a lot about Miyamoto. I, I personally would almost make the argument that given that Takeda has been more on the hardware end of Nintendo for a long time, and the fact that he doesn't necessarily have such a huge creative input into a lot of what they do. He might be the safer bet if they're not looking to shake up the company structure too much. Safer, but I think he'd be more of a interim until they could find someone internally that would really take over the reins for an elongated period of time. I can't see someone like him, them tapping him on the shoulder, be like, hey, can you be president for 10 years? I mean, 10 years is still pretty long It's a time. decent amount of time, sure, 10 years, but with Nintendo's history, I don't think they're going to be looking for someone who can only be there for 10 years. They're going to look for someone who's going to be there for 20 to 30 years. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then that's sort of what you're saying about Miyamoto, too. I mean, he's 62 right now. Right. So, I mean, you figure he's got maybe a good decade in him, right? And then he'll mm-hmm. probably want to retire, you know. Yeah, he's so. already talked about trying to step away and, yeah. and, and from game development. So, it might... And, and, you know, they might end up surprising us and pulling some, you know, 30, 40-something-year-old out of their ranks somewhere in Nintendo that we are not even aware of. Pulling up Sakurai. I mean, that could happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But if they do go private, um, I mean, not private, but outside their company, or just younger, I think it doesn't matter if they go outside their company or younger. I think that if, in either of those cases, you're going to have someone who is going to be more oriented on trying to have a console for the masses. Maybe not so much... I mean, the younger part, maybe I might be wrong on if they're coming out of Nintendo with that mentality, but in terms of the masses, what you said, more safer. Not not for the masses like the Wii, like trying to get your mom and dad involved, like more of the gamer kind of culture and try to maintain Nintendo's first-party first party IPs on that console... But at the same time, bringing in more third-party developers with a more attractive architecture and power base than what the competitors are offering. I think when it really comes down to it, Nintendo's IPs are really what their selling point is. Like, the Wii... First of all, they didn't even expect that to to be as successful as it was. And I don't think anybody did. And I don't think it serves them well to try to replicate that because that was... It was unusual. It was unexpected. And while it was great, I don't think that they should be trying to chase that. That's a, that's the same argument that has mm-hmm. been made for, well, a decade now, mm-hmm. about other companies trying to replicate World of Warcraft's success. It's not going to happen, so stop doing it. Mm-hmm. That was a certain set of very specific timing and conditions 
that led to that level of success. Oh, absolutely. And you can make that same argument for the Wii, and I don't think that it is in their best interest to continue trying to chase that because it's not going to work. So, having said that, regardless of who they bring in, and if they do bring in somebody else, whether it's outside or someone other than these two candidates from within, I feel like, as I mentioned that it would be best to have somebody that's perhaps a little bit more business-minded that would want to still maintain the image that Nintendo has taken so long to cultivate, but rely more on the tried and true, which is, you know, that they know that their IPs are really what sell, you know, consoles and, and copies, and just give us a better, more powerful, solid you know, machine so you want to, to go, run those on. You want to go to kind of what Yamauchi's mindset was. But you have to think, he was ruthless. I don't know how much you know about how ruthless Nintendo was in the 80s and 90s. But Probably not as much as you. No. <laughs> Very ruthless. But um, you have to remember, like, back in, back in those days, they had the lockout chip, which yeah. um, prevented pretty much anyone but themselves from making the games. They'd make companies force them to produce you know pay for the production of their carts they wouldn't allow them to if they had a third party game on like they made a game for the master system mm-hmm. they couldn't release that game on Nintendo and Nintendo was king yeah. um, they just had really terrible business practices that yes they, they kind of did streamline the industry and restructured after the mess that it was but in terms of business practices Nintendo was the bad guy for a very very long time and it wasn't for lawsuits coming out that they, they, they pretty much tried to monopolize the industry that started breaking them down from third parties is when you start to see the cracks in, in, during the N64 era. Because they were extremely ruthless in the way they went about their business, and it did come back to bite them because they were, so, they were still so stubborn over trying to maintain control over everything they had, which is why they stuck with cartridges. Sure. Or CDs. I mean, but... Well, and proprietary... And proprietary uh, uh, media devices. Yeah, uh, and, but okay. Well, a, I, I'm not advocating that sort of business strategy anyway. And B, there's no way they'd be able to do that. No, again. there'd be no way they could do that now. They are never. They're never going to be in that same position again. But it was more business minded. How are we going to maximize yes. our revenue? And how are sure. we going to keep everyone else from getting into our honeypot? Sure, sure, yeah. And so in that aspect, yes. But I don't think it necessarily has to be like that sort of like cutthroat, ruthless business strategy. It's more of just, I think that they need to realize that they have been, while while they have been taking some of these risks, you know, creatively with some of the peripherals and things like that, they are, or have been, also closing the door on a lot of opportunities that could have been helping them along the way. For one, they're the only console out of all three that currently you know, exist in the current market that is still the oddball out that like no one wants to, no third party developer really wants to develop for. Which has been like that since the late N64 era. Right, right. And it's like something that they still haven't quite learned. And I feel like they've been missing out on a huge chunk there with third parties because they're the weird one out. And it's like, well, who, what developer in their right mind is going to look at one of three consoles that is entirely different from the other two with a smaller user base, 
um, smaller market penetration. It's like, why would we even touch this thing when we have two other consoles that are essentially the same architecture that we can release our game for along with PC with, relatively speaking, you know, minimal changes? They're shooting themselves in the foot. And they have been for quite a long time. And some of that's on the third-party developers, too. I'm not putting it most squarely on them, of course. It's mostly been no, on Nintendo because of the way not, they approached it. Right. They are, not, they are not making it conducive to developers. No. That's the problem. Well, it's like the argument that has always been proposed in that arena has been that I'm Nintendo, and I'm coming out with something cool. Hey, third-party developers, make cool stuff for our system. We want you to uh, revolutionize, you know, revolutionize the game industry with us. Come and make interesting games. And third-party developers were like, okay, we'll try. Then they go into it and they realize that they're putting all the development into these Nintendo systems. They're not selling on Nintendo systems because they're not Nintendo games. And then they go back to the PS, the, the Sony and Microsoft systems where they could have double the coverage and pretty much just make one game and they don't have to do anything unorthodox or uncomfortable. Yeah, and then on top of that, the game that they went and developed for a Nintendo console that is very, very specific, mostly because of the gimmicks that are included, now really can't be ported over to these other systems without a not insignificant amount of effort. Or vice versa. So they've totally fucked themselves on both ends. Mm-hmm. Developers developers are, are open to trying something new. But not at, not at the risk where it's going to hurt them financially. Right. And unfortunately, you know, that is the bottom line with anything. It's still going to be a business. So as long as you're... And that's why I said I think someone that's a little more business-minded might not do them any harm. Um, I think if this... And I don't know how far into the NX development they really are right now. But... Uh, I, I do think they lose a lot of their fun, though. You'd lose a lot. I don't of the think first, you but. have to. I don't think fun and weird ass gimmick are necessarily synonymous. No, I mean like, like the character, the, the characterization they put out, the oddballness they do have, because that is that is part of their uh, um, charisma. That is part of their uh, attraction. But they could totally still do that. Like there are so many ways to do that that doesn't include some bullshit peripheral that is going to you know alienate third parties and then also make it so that people might not even want to play the system. Like, I know for a fact I'm not the only one that stopped or never started playing a Wii because it was 100% motion control. I know I'm not the only one. So I think that there are ways that they can maintain the image that they have, and that's mostly through their, like, uh, UI design decisions on, like, their, you know, console dashboards, the way that they present information. Nintendo Directs. Nintendo Directs. That's perfect they should definitely continue doing that it's there there are ways to maintain that character without having to have that like weird additional thing on their console like they can still have a what we would consider more traditional console and still be that one develop or one company out of the three that is the one that really has that like quirky image they don't need to lose that I think they can do both. Well, we'll see. The Fusion Nintendo, we've been... And I think we've both been invested for Nintendo for the majority of our lives. Not just our adult lives, but the majority of our lives. Yeah. And um, they do have a lot of decisions they need to make. And they do need. I think they need to make them relatively soon. Uh, you don't want to view like you don't know what you're doing without your current president. So I think we'll be seeing some decisions coming from Nintendo in the near future, very near future, about what direction they intend on going. 
but I think we've we've pretty much capped this off. I think we've had a, a good discussion about the future, current state, and past of Nintendo. Uh, again, uh, rest in peace to Satoru Iwata. You provide us with plenty of good memories. Uh, you, you were taken away from us far too young. Absolutely. And uh, condolences to your family and your loved ones. And uh, Godspeed to you. And, and we understand. We do understand. If we don't understand, we're going to continue to try. This is July 19th, episode 8 of Retro Hangover Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today. Remember to comment on our Facebook page, uh, like our Facebook page, rate us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and email us at podcast at retrohangover.com. We'd love to hear feedback, and we hope to hear from you soon.